Hi, and welcome to season two of the East German Fashion History Podcast. So excited to bring you a whole new season with bi-monthly episodes happening every other Friday. And like the format for season one, there will be an accompanying blog post for each episode. And I'll also have bonus content on my Instagram account, which you can search for. Um, it's just C and then N-I-C-K-E-L. Now for the month of September, we're going to be focusing on fashion in the German Democratic Republic and its relationship to architecture. Today is going to be history heavy. It's going to be a deep dive into architecture in East Germany and West Germany. And some of the major concepts that we're going to be surveying are the Bauhaus in post-war Germany, political tensions with contested definitions of what modernism is in the East versus in the West, and the politicization of interior design and consumerism. And I'm going to be adding that second layer, which is going to be more fashion-focused in the following episode. So I'd like to start off with a quote from one of my favorite architects, Zaha Hadid, to help you contextualize today. She said, architecture is the person placing herself in the space. Fashion is how you place the object in the person. And if we think about that, it you know carries a lot of weight and meaning throughout history, the history of human civilization. But the way we're going to look at architecture is today, or another way of focusing on it, is looking at it in as terms of it being an ambassador. It, like fashion, can be an ambassador representing the strength, success, and the personality of a country or a nation. So I'd like you to take those two thoughts into account. How is architecture, if architecture is how the person places herself in the space, and fashion is how you place the object in on the person, versus seeing it, seeing the relationship between fashion and architecture as they are ambassadors, ambassadors representing, you know, maybe the strength, success that you want to have people perceive. So we're going to dive right into the history. Now, in order to understand the state of architecture in the German Democratic Republic, we'll need to look at its legacy. And East Germany was known, was where the original Bauhaus Dessau was founded. And this was a symbol of unparalleled modernist design and really still today carries much of the weight of Germany's architectural heritage that people reflect back on. Now in 1950, less than a year of the founding of the GDR, the Dutch architect, urban planner, and furniture designer, most well, most well known for his cantilevered chair design, and lecturer at, from the Bauhaus, Mart Stam, moved back to East Germany from the Netherlands after hiding out in World War II. Stam founded the Institute for Industrial Design at the College of Applied Arts in Berlin-Weissensee, Germany. Now, side note, if Berlin-Weissensee sounds familiar from season one, it's because this was the school where many of Zibilla, the East German fashion magazine I spoke of, Zibilla's fashion photographers came from. 
Now, like many left-wing artists and designers, Mart Stam saw the GDR as really the hope for a new utopia. And like many artists and designers, they would eventually become disillusioned with the Stalinist reality. It was his concept of functional modernism that ultimately would shape the minds and modes of his students at his school and for the rest of their career. Many of the former, even many of the former Bauhäuslers even trickled in back to the GDR, including Marianne Brandt, Franz Ehrlich, El Lisitzky, and they all helped in the reconstruction of East Germany and many of its cities. Now, the Bauhaus in East Germany could really be seen as almost covalently bonded. You know, they're sharing an atom, and that atom is having a common history and culture. Although this was their strong link was to be contested, and we'll soon, soon see that. Now, in addition to Mart Stam's School of Industrial Design at the Berlin Weissensee, you also had other schools um, that would focus primarily on architecture and interior design. You had the College of Art and Design in Burg Gebischenstein in Halle. And you had, and that was really the focal point for design. And you also had Horst uh, Michel's Institute for Interior Design in Weimar. Unfortunately, though, when it came to power or age or agency in their industry, these designers who had studied at these prestigious schools didn't really have any. The VEB or Volkseigene Betrieb, People's Own Factory, rarely ever employed product designers. Um, rather, they had workers or engineers working on pieces, thinking about the technical solutions, but not necessarily the aesthetics and the form. But it was Mart Stam's legacy um, would be his students, and we'll, we'll see that further on with designers like Martin Kelm, Günther Reismann, Albert Krause, who were schooled in functionalism, and they really did appropriate his cool modern style for the mass-produced pieces of the GDR. Now, in 1953, the SED, the Sozialistische Einheitspartei, the East German Communist Party, launches a smear campaign against all things West Germany and associates the Bauhaus with it. Part of this was to prove that the GDR was the true Germany, and this naturally ruled out any cultural embrace of international styles like the Bauhaus. They thought it was form without, you know, it was form without ornament. The party professed that art, architecture, and design should recall past German styles in a way that served workers and farmers. The motto was socialist in content, nationalist in form. And the idea was to imitate styles like Rococo, Baroque, Chippendale, oddly enough, and giving that cultural heritage, giving that aesthetic back to the workers and farmers that would be using and buying and inhabiting these styles. Since many Bauhäuslers emigrated to the States during World War II and the aesthetic became widely adopted in America and in West Germany, SED politicians pointed out that the Bauhaus had become too tied to West Germany and to America. Even the way it was referred to was very politicized. 
While modernism, also known as formalism, were the terms you would see in the West, in the GDR, functionalism was the term they would use. And there was even a ban on formalism. Now, if we think about this in context with the United States, which they're constantly at a race with, judging how the United States may have symbolically infused modernism as a democratic style or the style of the West, it makes sense that they would refute this Bauhausian style. Let's look at the art of the period. To give you better context, you have abstract art, which is basically mostly about the individual and the individual struggle. And at the same time, you had American embassies being built and those designs were very modernist and were built mid-century modern, Bauhaus-inspired, and they were built and designed by modernists. In a really great book, in Greg Castillo's Domesticating the Cold War, he cites that during the 1950s, the U.S. sought to further propagate the American model of mass consumption in Europe by organizing a series of exhibitions in West Germany and other Marshall Plan countries. And these exhibitions were to demonstrate the technical achievements and how international modernism was the ideal for a Western home. And it was in West Germany that designers were even supported to interpret American design, which was highly symbolic. Meanwhile, the GDR had their designers were challenged in inventing new interpretations that epitomized a true German design. Now, the implications of national socialism in that era we can get into in another episode and in the following episode, but I just want to highlight that. So if you think about it this way, mid-century modernism can be seen as imperialist with its lines, curves, and organic forms. It really symbolized the West and it symbolized capitalism. All of this, however, wouldn't have been possible without the Bauhaus, which which it grew from. So next time you look at that mid-century modern West Elm coffee table to pair with your crate and barrel couch that you've been eyeing, just think that it's also just riddled with this politicized architectural history. It's the very warp and weft that wove Cold War tension or some of the Cold War tension. And that's not to say the same wasn't going on in the East. In fact, uh, in the post-Stalin Khrushchev era, Khrushchev had become became obsessed with domesticity. And it's important to note the fact that America had symbolically loaded modernism in the style of the West, but this didn't restrain Russia from using those same aesthetics. Whether in Western Europe, America or East Bloc countries, the home and its interior furnishings became highly politicized platforms down to the skeletal level of aesthetics. Now, where does this leave East Germany? While um, SED head Walter Ulbricht believed that the boxed homes going up in West German cities like Hamburg, Stuttgart, Frankfurt am Main 
were based off of American models and saw them as, quote, West Germany's role as American protectorate. Ooh, that's, that's actually a little salty. He preferred the historicized style that we spoke of. So returning to Rococo, Baroque, even Chippendale, and returning that back, giving that back to the farmers and the people of East Germany. Now, this idea wouldn't last because it was expensive and it was useless. Mind you, this is still in post-war East Germany, and the nation is coming out of still trying to grapple with having basic existential needs like housing and food. And most of these cities were, of course, um, destroyed by the war. So there was a huge rebuilding efforts. But how can you rebuild a new municipal city on a planned budget when you want an, an all-marble Rococo interior within a matter of months? It's, it's not possible. So the idea of returning to traditional architectural styles to, um, and giving that to the public seemed very ambitious but not realistic. Also, there was a huge housing crisis. Now, due to an, an acute housing crisis, Ulbricht promised to build 100,000 apartments by 1959. This present design aesthetic was too expensive, though, and, the, and there, was, there was a need to build not formalist but functionalist housing blocks. This new program provide, proved wildly successful and requiring, he required up to 750,000 apartments built by 1965. These prefabricated homes were made by large concrete slabs commonly referred to as Plattbauten. Now, because of this and other concerns, in 1956, the ban on formalism was formally lifted by, by way of Nikita Khrushchev. So enter in East Germany's own defined style of modernism, which would be referred to as functionalism. So that means it was more acceptable. Now, another thing we need to talk about is... In the interior, the interior, the home, and how fashion and textiles interact with that and how women are codified in that. Now you have an increase because of these, this massive amount of housing complexes going up. There's, there's a wild amount of need for furniture and requirements for living, living home, living in a home that's perfectly furnished. And they had, the SED had calculated they wanted to have these, quote, machines for living that were scientifically calculated with solutions of how much space an average family could need. The Bauhäusler Selman Selmanik and Franz Ehrlich provided space-saving furniture for these living quarters, which was made from sort of like a corrugated wood that you would find almost similar to a little cheaper though than like what you would find in an Ikea. And um, these ironically were, uh, these, uh, these were definitely not as, not as nicely made as one would intend. Um, but again, like having good quality was important, but having something that was practical and what was, that was reusable was more, most important. One of the popular styles was a sleeper sofa, sofa, 
and these shelf units called Schrankwände. So if you think of if you think of interior design and you think about the importance of these sleeper sofas and these Schrankwände, they were really just they were almost a symbol of of this modern functionalist living that you could seamlessly seamlessly have a family of four in. And of course, you have a very very limited amount of space because you have these massive housing complexes trying to furnish and be styled for these Germans. Now, in 1956, two design-related journals were established in the GDR. One explicitly aimed at the people professionally interested in design. That was called Form und Zweck, Form and Intent. And then a popular home decorating journal called Kultur im Heim, or Culture in the Home. And in Form und Zweck's first issue, clearly shows that the direction in which East German form and design would develop. It, it, it pleaded for simple, safe space, space saving and pars parsimonious. And it was ultimately there to fight the fight against the kitsch of capitalism or capitalism as kitsch and its mass production, which was thought as thoughtless. But I think it's the following quote from Kultur im Heim that really encapsulates the GDR's stance on how capitalism lacked good design because its intent was largely superficial and they, were, and they considered it con consciousless. So this, this is a direct quote from Kultur im Heim. Quote, I believe the existence of kitsch has much more to do with the capitalist world. Measured by fast development of productive powers in technology and also culture, that disturbed concepts that had previously remained stable. Whereas the technological development rashly raised the material wealth of the society and created leisure possibilities for the people to enjoy this wealth, it is the duty of the socialist cultural revolution to use this acquired wealth and time for the perfection of human life. Against this, there are, quote, retarding moments in the form of ingrained habits, mistakenly called, quote, needs in many areas, but definitely in the area of one's surroundings. The kitsch need, kitschbedürfnis, yes, there's a German word for that, is a symptom of the deformation of aesthetic consciousness. As long as the cause of the deformation of consciousness is not sublimated, aufgehoben, it will always manifest itself. This is how I explain to myself the existence of kitsch, and I think that one has to dismantle this in order to free the human being from it, end quote. So that's a lot to take in. Um, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm going to post that on the blog for Monday so you can read that, digest it, and water it down into something more malleable. But what this is all illustrating, that in the end, with this battle, with this cultural revolution and this, well, mainly this battle of wanting to return to the past and wanting to return to these architectural styles and giving that were considered bourgeoisie, but then giving them back to the farmers, great idealistic goal, never ended up working out. And East Germany returned to, or didn't return to, but gave into more, a more modernist aesthetic which is all the more ironic. And 
if you listen to season one, you'll also see this throughout season two. You have these high aspirations from the SED and then the realities of what they can work with and what budget they actually have. Side note. Now, in the last half of this, I want to look a little into some fashion magazines at the time, or specifically pattern making magazines, and seeing how this, these interior design styles and how these varying aesthetics were playing out quite literally. So we have a July issue of Praktische Mode. I was super excited to get this because July 1961 is a month before the Berlin Wall went up. And Praktische Mode, or Practical Fashion, is a pattern-making magazine. Now, this was a staple in a lot of East German households because fashionable clothing and sizes were really hard to come by and very scarce. So a lot of women had ended up sewing their own because it was more economical, and when you had a family of four, it was, it was the most efficient, and you could also personalize it to your style. There was a lot of these beautiful designs that would come out from the DMI or the, the German Fashion Institute, and they were either A, nowhere to be found, or very expensive. So this was your best solution. So from Praktische Mode, July 1961, there's a couple articles. One is called Mit modernen Regalen wohnen, Living with Modern Shelf Spaces. And this features, and Funny enough, 1961, they're using the word modern. Um, so you have, it features this, these photographs showing these sleek mid-century modern shelving spaces. And the article goes on to advise on the best kind of spaces are wide and open. But if you don't have that because of your whatever, you know, if you live in a housing complex, these shelving units just might do the trick. And it goes on to talk about the importance of, again, price and practicality, which is going to be a re repeated theme throughout looking at architecture and interior design and some of the, the needs, the wishes, and the realities of what's available is you need something practical and you need something price savvy. The same issue features a fashion convention where Poland, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, and China are all present showing their latest collections. One sees a slew of shirt dresses in clean graphic prints and gingham, but they're shot against a Gothic church where you can see a slew of stained glass windows and these beautiful Romanesque carved arches. So it's as if in one issue you are you have one foot in the past and you have one foot in the future and the gar the garments it's the clothing that ultimately drive it forward and are sort of the great common denominator between these conflicting styles while East Germany is still trying to find or is defining its national identity and the idea of a socialist personality in an October issue of the same magazine, you have article you have an article that is titled New Shoes. Oh, um, New School. New Shoes for School. Sorry. New Shoes for School. And it's an it's an illustration of children um, decked out in blue jumpers and gingham shirts with a photograph of a newly built school. 
in the photograph, you have a functionalist building, giant windows, kind of cube box-like, probably mass-produced, and there is a mural featuring a mural of workers and children. In another ish, in another article, lovely little wool dresses. It shows women in various dresses, and scoots and skirt suits, um, either prancing at a public park, hanging out by a fountain. But also, there was it was really was striking is this one image of a woman by a traditional wooden cart, which almost looked like a food truck, but not motorized. So it had something pastoral about it, and she's wearing this really beautiful red wool skirt suit dress. Next to that, you have another woman, another woman, and she's against, she's wearing a green wool dress and she's by a newly built municipal building. So again, this new versus old, this, this balancing of two, two ideas of what a socialist personality, what a socialist aesthetic should be. In a December 1961 issue of Praktische Mode, you, it features women um, at a holiday party wearing these really beautiful, um, really expensive looking jacquard tea dresses and skirt suits. And they're these really beautiful florals. Um, they, I imagine they're very colorful. And in the background, you have these giant curtains that practically match the dress. So again, you, you're balancing these two cultures. So I think that was, that was a good start for today. Um, we covered a good amount. Um, next week, I'm going to focus more, uh, in two weeks, I'm going to focus more on socialist realist architecture. That's the architecture you see everywhere. And some of it that's been considered and can be defined as brutalist and how that interacts with fashion photography. And again, be sure to check back on Monday where I'll have all the images that I'm referring to up on my blog post and feel free to follow C. Nickel for some bonus weekend content. And of course, I'll have show notes throughout so that you can read, read everything that we've covered and have sort of a stronger outline. And that's it. So thank you so much for listening. I know it was a lot. I know it was, we dove right into the history. We jumped around a little, but I think that was a necessary context for how we're going to move forward with this dialogue of architecture, fashion, and how it provides the ultimate vehicle for expressing the German Democratic Republic. Danke and good night.